Hello and welcome to Battleground Gaza with me, Patrick Bishop and Roger Morehouse, who's standing in for Saul David, who even as we speak is paddling a canoe through the wild and windy waters of the Scottish coast, doing that for charity. So good on you, Saul. Well, in the last few days, we've seen the long announced incursion by Israeli ground forces into the northern part of the Gaza Strip, while at the same time, the bombing campaign shows no signs of letting up all this, of course, in pursuit of the Israeli government's declared intention to destroy Hamas as a military organization once and for all. We'll be discussing their chances of achieving that aim, but we're also going to be looking at the Israeli military tradition, where it comes from historically, how history has shaped its methods and its ethos, and trying to see how that will affect events in Gaza as they unfold in the days and very possibly weeks and months to come. But first, let's have a look at what's happening right now on the ground. The Israelis took their time going in, didn't they, Patrick? The Hamas atrocities took place back on 7th of October, and it's only now, three weeks later, that the actual ground assault that is needed if the Israelis are going to achieve their objectives has finally kicked off. That's right, Roger. Uh, Before I go any further, I better apologise to listeners for my voice. Uh, I've just developed a terrible cold overnight, so I'm going to be spluttering and wheezing. Uh, Apologies for that. Well, to get back to what's going on in Gaza on the ground, there are huge human and political stakes at play here. I think hence the delay. Hamas is holding more than 200 hostages, and clearly they are massively at risk in all this. All along, there's been the possibility that Hamas will use their lives to win some sort of concessions. Uh, Historically, when this has happened before, it's been the release of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails that they've been after. But this is a new situation, and it may be that Hamas will use them as human shields to protect their upper echelons if they are in danger of coming under direct attack. They've also, of course, got great value as uh, bargaining chips in political negotiations. At the moment, these may seem very far away, a very distant prospect, but you never say never in the Middle East, and it's possible they could be part of an eventual ceasefire agreement. Anyway, what's happened so far is what you would expect from previous incursions, but on a very big scale. So continuous airstrikes taking up what the IDF says is Hamas personnel and infrastructure, laying waste to vast swathes of Gaza City and elsewhere, and of course, killing many civilians in the process, all this to prepare the battlefield for the tanks which have now entered northern Gaza from several directions and are edging into Gaza City as we speak. There have been uh, several clashes with Hamas so far. This, I imagine, would be more or less uh, suicide units who pop up from the rubble or one of the many tunnels uh, to engage the armor with anti-tank missiles and RPGs, and they'll almost certainly die in the process. The IDF is claiming dozens dead, but it's early days, and presumably, though not certainly, uh, Hamas will have some plan for how they're going to react to an incursion that was always a certainty. What do you think that plan would look like, Roger? Well, uh, speaking as a historian, I, and I can do nothing else, I, I see this as a classic example of asymmetric warfare. So I'd imagine that the Hamas plan is to draw the Israelis in as deep as possible, and that for two reasons. The, the first is that although the Gaza Strip is pretty small, and I think you pointed out that it's actually smaller than the Isle of Wight, Patrick, which for our non-British listeners is a, a modest-sized holiday island off the south coast of England, uh, the deeper that the Israeli forces penetrate, the more vulnerable they make themselves, especially from ambush from the tunnels and so on. 
And there are countless examples from history. You could look, for example, at the, the Battle of Monte Cassino, where it was shown that it was actually easier for the defenders to defend rubble than to defend standing buildings. Now, in addition to that, of course, there's the much vaunted tunnel system beneath Gaza, um, some of which will have been destroyed by Israeli, Israeli bombing, but, but not all of it. Um, so that will also pose a, a rather profound threat. So at a certain point, the Israelis will, in all reality, will have to dismount from their armored vehicles and go on foot if they're really going to clear every Hamas position. And it's at that point that they'll be most exposed. The, the technological advantage that they have enjoyed over the Hamas fighters will have been nullified at that point. So air power is not much use at very close quarters. And although Hamas don't have tanks or armor or, or even very sophisticated weaponry, AK-47s and RPGs can be extremely effective in that sort of close urban warfare. The second point I'd make is that the deeper the Israelis go into Gaza, the more chance there is of inflicting those civilian casualties, which of course absolutely suits the Hamas playbook. The health ministry in Gaza, admittedly a Hamas mouthpiece, is saying that 8,000 Palestinians have already died, many of them women, children and the elderly. And this has understandably fueled the demands from many quarters for a ceasefire. The Israeli ground operation is only going to boost those numbers and thereby increase the diplomatic pressure on Israel to call a halt at some point. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think Hamas would regard a ceasefire as a victory for them. That's certainly how they'll present it. Uh, basically, they agree with aphorism number eight uh, from Friedrich Nietzsche's Twilight of the Idols, what does not kill me makes me stronger, as you would say, Roger. Roger's a linguist, he speaks very, very good German. Was mich nicht umbringt, macht mich starker. Have I said that right? Very, very good, Patrick. Very good. <laughs> but I mean, that's also how the Israelis see it. You know, Netanyahu said yesterday uh, that a ceasefire would be a victory for, for Hamas or, de or defeat for the Israelis. So that's, that's definitely how it's been framed by both sides. So if Hamas survived this operation in any meaningful way, they will, in their eyes, have won. That's why uh, this operation, codenamed Iron Swords, is different. If you look back at earlier incursions, I'm thinking of uh, Operation Cast Lead in December 2008, uh, launched after Hamas, who'd come to power a couple of years before 2006, uh, started firing hundreds of rockets indiscriminately at Israel. Now, Israel's defense minister at the time, Ehud Barak, claimed that there were three objectives for the offensive, uh, and they were dealing Hamas a forceful blow, fundamentally changing the situation in Gaza and bringing the rocket attacks against Israeli citizens to a halt. Now, this time the aim's much more ambitious. Um, Netanyahu said it's nothing less than to destroy Hamas. Now, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean killing or capturing every single Hamas commander and fighter? I don't think that's a realistic ambition, not least because even if the IDF managed to do this, the dead would be celebrated and honoured as martyrs, and a new generation of young Gazans would grow up to take their place. This is something that many Israelis know, and the government must know itself in its heart of hearts. However, for the meantime, that's their declared aim, and the IDF's prestige, and certainly Netanyahu's continuation in power, depend on being able to show some progress towards their initial stated war aim. So a very difficult task for the IDF, both militarily and politically. But we promised to take you back to the beginning. Roger, Poland is one of your areas of great expertise. And that's at least in part where the IDF has its roots, no? 
Uh, yes, and and points east. One of the key figures in this is um, was Zeev Jabotinsky, who had had a most fascinating life. Uh, he was born in Odessa and was very much a child of the the Pale of Settlement, which was the old area of the the Russian Empire in which Jews were permitted to settle. And it's where in the 19th century there were numerous pogroms against the Jews, not not unlike what we saw this week at uh, Makhachkala Airport, uh, which is a rather sort of grim uh, modern revisitation of the old idea of the pogrom. But it was these pogroms that sort of spurred the Zionist idea in 19th century Jewish mind. And the idea that if the Jews were unwelcome everywhere, then they should establish a, a homeland of their own in Palestine where they could be safe. And Jabotinsky was an, an early Zionist and was the founder of Betar uh, in 1923, which was one of several right-wing paramilitary youth movements that arose at that time. He did later come to be close to Mussolini, to Mussolini's Italy in the later interwar years, not really out of ideological proximity, but rather because he recognised that fundamental change was necessary for him to achieve his aims, and that was probably uh, more achievable uh, with the... Uh, the rising powers of, of fascism sort of challenging the status quo rather than the uh, the representatives of the status quo like the British. Anyway, Jabotinsky died in 1940, but, but Betar lived on. And during World War II, it was uh, a source of recruits both for the Jewish regiments that fought alongside the British and for Jewish groups that were fighting against the British in Palestine. After the war, and during the settlement of, of what became Israel, Betar was then linked to the original Herut and then uh, Likud, political parties of Jewish pioneers. And it was closely affiliated to the, the pre-Israel revisionist Zionist movement uh, and militant group Irgun. Now, some of the most prominent politicians of Israel were members of Betar in their youth, and most notably Prime Ministers Yitzhak Shamir and Menachem Begin, latter of whom was a, a real admirer of Jabotinsky. But of course, that's only one strand in the tradition, and I, th I think you can give us another one, Patrick. Yeah, you did have these competing traditions in uh, Palestine in the 1920s, 1930s. You've got on the one side these, you know, pretty right-wing militaristic outfits uh, like Betar, but then you've got this competing tradition, uh, which is represented by the Haganah. This is the, uh, the defense, it means. It was founded in 1920 to protect Jewish communities from attacks by Arabs uh, who were angered by the big influx of Jewish immigrants following the Belfort Declaration. Now, they had a less aggressive sort of posture. The principle was Havlaga, which is, means self-restraint, and their outlook was very, political outlook was very much of the left. But as the tensions grew, there were successive anti-Jewish riots, then there was the Arab revolt against British rule. They sort of became outflanked by the, by the right-wingers, now joined by Irgun and Lehi, also known as the Stern Gang, who were all for taking the fight to the Arabs, and they went about it in, in ways that the British described them, I think, accurately as terrorists, you know, planting bombs in cinemas, etc., in Arab cinemas, that is, attacking Arab villages. And then, of course, you get into this cycle of reprisal and attack and reprisal, and, which is, really goes on to this day. And with the Second World War, Haganah basically joined up with Brits against the Nazis, but when the war came to an end and the right-wingers stepped up their campaign against the British, Haganah, having held back in the, in the beginning, then finally joined in. And so by the time it comes to the Jewish-Arab civil war that precedes the foundation of the Israeli state, they're, they're pretty well cooperating together. But what I would say to all this is that the IDF, at the core of the IDF is the Haganah and their sort of tradition and, and their values. 
And they went on to fight conventional wars very successfully, first of all against the Arab states in uh, 1948, then again the Six-Day War, uh, 1967, the Yom Kippur War, 1973, and, you know, proved themselves to be uh, brilliant soldiers. But most of the time, they've actually been fighting the Palestinians in one form or another, either against popular disturbances or unrest uh, or terrorist attacks or guerrilla operations. And I think I think this legitimately raises the question of whether the IDF is configured properly for its main security tasks, i.e. are tanks, you know, super modern tanks, missiles, artillery, fast jets, are they the right way to confront the threats that Israel faces? Of course, a certain amount of that is necessary. But I think you see that, you know, the massive firepower that, that they have at their disposal is evident in these, in the relative casualty figures. You know, we've seen 8,000 plus die in Gaza thus far. You know, you just look down at the years. There's a question of proportionality that inevitably comes up when you see the disparity in the casualty figures. And, you know, when we're looking at what's going on in Gaza, you've just been talking about it, Roger. I mean, you wonder how... Are the tools that these very blunt instruments for all the precision of these weapons in a very built up area, they're bound to cause a great innocent uh, suffering. So, are they actually using the right tools for this job? Wouldn't they have been better at some point of rethinking their whole kind of security strategy and reorganizing the idea in a way that could actually confront Hamas in, I would say, in a, in a more efficient manner? Yeah, I'd agree that that I think there's a sort of fundamental problem here. If the Israeli response to uh, what's happened, you know, three weeks ago is one of essentially the use of overwhelming force to serve essentially as a deterrent, because as we know, the Palestinian cause has sort of metastasized to such a point where it won't be simply deterred by rational logic. And indeed, as Hamas themselves have said, you know, they even welcome large scale casualties you know, not only for the the fresh crop of martyrs that it means at home, but because it stirs pro-Palestinian opinion in the West and, and thereby puts increased diplomatic pressure on Israel to stay its hand. So from a Hamas perspective, you know, it's win-win if there are these large-scale casualties among, among the Palestinian populations. The problem here is that Israel was so stung, of course, by those Hamas attacks of the 7th of October, which were unbelievably brutal, that it's scarcely willing to go easy as if it ever were. And nonetheless, one point that I've wondered about, Patrick, and you you mentioned this, this three-week wait that we've had since the Hamas attacks on southern Israel. And of course, there have been extensive air attacks in that time, supposedly, as you say, as surgical as, surgical as is possible in the circumstances. But is it possible that this delay on behalf of Israel and the IDF is not necessarily them staying their hand, but rather is them being mindful of that counterproductive nature of causing yet another round of mass Palestinian casualties. And crucially also in the wider perspective, a desire to keep the Saudis on board. Yeah, that's an interesting point about the Saudis, isn't it? I mean, when this uh, these terrible events happened, the first reaction of many was, well, this is clearly manipulated by Iran uh, using uh, their proxies in the Gaza Strip, Hamas, to derail the Abraham Accords, you know, this process by which Israel has diplomatically been getting closer and closer to Arab states uh, in the Gulf and, you know, with the ultimate view of, of, of finding, having a sort of proper accord with the Saudis, which would, be, which would be a huge diplomatic development in the area. And of course, this is very unwelcome to the Iranians. And so uh, they press the button 
for Hamas to, to launch these attacks. I think there, there may well be something in that, but I wouldn't actually despair of, of that process uh, continuing. I don't think it's necessarily off the board forever. And you know, these things do come to an end eventually. And I think it's in the grand strategic interest of both the Saudis and the Israelis to keep it going. So I'm, I'm not sure that that's the reason for holding back. I think it's more likely to be domestic political considerations. If they're going to make this work, if they're going to actually achieve their stated aims, they've really got to think very, very carefully about how it is they do that. So I think that period would have been, a lot of it would have been intelligence gathering, you know, putting together a uh, very specific plan uh, to carry out what they said they're going to do. Well, that's all for part one. Now join us in part two, and we'll be answering, or at least trying to answer, some of the questions on the subject which uh, from our listeners, which are clearly causing a lot of anguish and moral confusion. So we'll see you then. Welcome back to part two of Battleground Gaza. Now, I'm going to start off just reading out a message we got from Blanade in Dublin. And Blanade says, what I'm massively struggling with is that the very same people who stood up to Russia are visiting violence, violence they previously condemned, in Gaza. How can they balance those two things in their mind? I can't. I see pictures of bombed out kids in Gaza and all I think is Ukraine, which leads me to question, was this not wrong five minutes ago, bombing churches, bombing hospitals, but now it's okay. And Blanade goes on in this vein. And and I think a very crucial point that she makes, she says that, uh, I don't know what leaders are thinking. They're giving Russia and China such ammunition. How can they now criticize any Russian activity in Ukraine? How can they condemn the bombing of any civilian infrastructure? How can they condemn the bombing of mosques and churches, when the first thing that's going to be said back is, well, you said it was okay in Gaza. Will this not impact Ukraine's ability to lodge cases of war crimes? And there's quite a lot more in that vein. Well, my first reaction is, uh, well, sorry, the uh, Blade signs off, keep up the good work, lads, and good luck making sense of this email. Well, no, I think the sense is quite clear. And I think that you've, you've raised a very important point I mean, just stepping back to look at it from the diplomatic point of view, this is a this is a gift to the Russians. How come it's a sort of widespread and quite justified condemnation when they bomb civilian infrastructure, but when uh, the Israelis do it, whether intentionally or otherwise, then that's considered to be a sort of a reasonable reaction and the cause for a ceasefire, which have been echoing around the world, are not picked up by the main powers that might actually bring it about. It's interesting that uh, the Americans find themselves on the same side in the UN Security Council with the Russians. There have been several attempts by the council to frame a resolution for a humanitarian pause to allow aid to get in, but they've all been vetoed either by Russia or by the US. So yes, this definitely, I would say, undermines future criticism by the US when and if Russia resumes missile attacks on power stations and the like in Ukraine as the winter progresses, just as they did last year. Uh, what are your thoughts, Roger? Yeah, I'd agree with that in, in, in the sort of wider strategic sense, absolutely. I think it is a, it is a gift to the Russians. And, you know, the, the sight of, um, you know, Hamas representatives sort of cozying up in Moscow with Putin was one that uh, should, have, should have sent 
shivers down everyone, everybody's spines, because it, it, it sort of, whether that link is necessarily explicit or not, it, it nonetheless sort of raises the, the, the rather awful possibility that they are at least aligned. Um, but I would just, just to address that, fir- that sort of first comment that Blanade made, I completely understand. This is kind of in the sort of much narrower sense, uh, where she talks about you know being being so moved by by seeing those images of, of children and so on. I think it's perfectly natural, of course, to to have that sort of human response when you when you see those pictures. But I think, in a way, we have to we have to also look at the wider strategic question and look at what's behind it and look at what's going on, and in a way, to to some extent, kind of see past that emotive response. And of course, this, you know, the, the Gaza question at the moment is a much more complex one than, than Ukraine is. I mean, Ukraine was a clear cut case of, of, you know, unprovoked aggression. This is much more complex. It has a much longer historical tale. It has blame on both sides going way back. But at the same time, if you look at the, you know, what's going on right now and what happened on the, on the 7th of October was that Israel was attacked. And and this is now Israel responding in kind. And in a sense, you know, I think we have to not let go of that. Uh, regardless, I, I know people are going to shout about the history, the history, but, you know, Israel was attacked on the 7th of October. Yeah. In the same vein, uh, Toby Jones uh, writes saying, I'm a dedicated listener of your Battleground Ukraine podcast, but find it difficult to listen to your Gaza podcast. I'm concerned that there isn't more definite and overt condemnation of the Israeli bombing an artillery campaign that has resulted in 5,000 civilian deaths. Well, that number's gone up, I think, uh, to about 8,000, more than 8,000 now, most of whom are likely to be women and children. Um, we don't actually know, do we, what what the breakdown is? And he, Toby says, it surprises me that more attention is not given to this by our leaders. There's a stark discrepancy in our moral outrage when comparing Russian actions against civilians to those of the IDF. Really echoing the point made by Blanade, it's, it is very difficult not to get emotional about a subject, especially when you see those images of children, terrified children, wandering through rubble-strewn streets. And I have to say, I think that there, there is a, a discrepancy in the way this is treated by the media in particular. Our job, I think, is we're, tr- we're trying to stand back for it and look at the, the, the historical roots we're historians first and foremost, and try and make some sense of this. And as Roger rightly says, this is a story with a very long tail. Both sides have done terrible things to each other. But what we're trying to do is not apportion blame. We're just trying to see where this is going. And as I say, bring some sort of clarity to the situation. But I do feel that that you've got a very real point about the way that the thing is reported. A lot of the time, the particularly from the kind of you know conservative media, there's a suggestion that what's happening in Gaza is actually in some way being distorted. The figures are being questioned. Joe Biden himself questioned the number of casualties. I don't think it gets you anywhere unless you actually face the facts. The facts are that Israel was attacked in the most horrible way and it is responding with great force. And that means that more people are going to die and that, you know, portioning blame at this point, I don't think is going to make things easier. What you want is is real practical action, and that is a ceasefire. I completely think that a, a call for a ceasefire seems to me to be entirely justified, given that uh, my belief is that Israel is not actually going to achieve its military ends, and, and all that will happen in, in this ongoing campaign is more misery and more suffering, and, and that the energy that went into that would be better applied, standing back and re-examining once again a diplomatic, peaceable solution to this terrible running sore. 
that we've all lived with most of our lives. Now, Toby makes a point in that the end of that um, that question where he says calls for a ceasefire seem entirely justified, given that Israel, as it must know, cannot achieve its aims. And even if it could, it would require necessarily huge loss of civilian life. And I think I think he's right there. And I think I, as I said earlier on in when we were discussing matters in, in the first part, I think Israel is, a, is acutely aware of this and it's aware of the political consequences and the counterproductive nature of creating another crop of Palestinian martyrs, um, to put it very bluntly. So I, I think they are aware of that, but at the same time, they are, in a sense, forced by their own history and their own sense of outrage for what happened on the on October 7th to act in some way. They have to avenge themselves to some extent on Hamas. They have to remove the threat that Hamas represents to them, which is existential, let's be honest. So I think he makes the point there that I agree that um, they are aware that they cannot achieve those aims without huge civilian losses, but they're stuck in a sort of cleft stick that they do have to respond. Yeah. I wouldn't agree with you that it's an existential threat. They simply, you know, just practically speaking, Hamas don't have the means to do anything except kill civilians, essentially. I mean, when they come up against the idea if they're always going to be defeated if they launch any offensive operation. I mean, that's what we saw. This was basically a raid, what happened on October the 7th. A raid plus a pogrom is what it was. But in any meaningful sense, I I don't think that that Hamas threatens uh, the existence of Israel. What it does is it threatens its security and it makes life periodically hell for Israelis with the rocket attacks and, you know, this dreadful escalation that we saw on October the 7th, but I, I'm going going back really to what I said in part one about, you know, is the IDF actually configured to deal with the real security jobs that circumstances set it? I think just to come back, Patrick, I think there's two two points there. The first one is that certainly, you know, the Hamas rhetoric is exterminatory effectively. You know, they are not willing for to, to have a, a two-state solution. And I think, although, as you say, you rightly say, sort of militarily, they can't realistically take on, let alone destroy Israel, the people behind them potentially could do, and that's the Islamic Republic of Iran. So there is potentially a wider existential threat to Israel, as has always been there through the you know 75 years of its existence. So I, I, you, I think you can understand why Israel would see this as an ex- existential problem. Yeah, I was just on speaking about the specifics of Hamas, but you're you're right in the broader regional picture. Yeah, you've got a, a potentially nuclear armed state to the east in Iran. So yes, I mean, it's, I've lived in Israel. I, I know what the kind of you know atmospherics of the place are, and you've still got the very strong memory of the Holocaust there. And the place was born in violence, and they've lived with violence and lived with threat from their surrounding states, etc., all their lives. So, yeah, it's entirely the, the Israeli mindset is entirely understandable. Uh, I'm just rather sort of loftily, I suppose, <laughs> I have the luxury of not living there to make these sort of appeals for a, a new approach, which is not me saying this. There are plenty of Israelis who feel the same way, a diminishing number, but there's still a big constituency there that still does believe you've got to go back to the drawing board, you've got to go back to the diplomatic drawing board, you've got to resurrect that two-state solution. It is the only way. There are other sort of fanciful you know, projections of how this could end peacefully. But I think 
The only thing that we've really got to work with is go back to the Oslo Accords, go back to the Tuesday solution. And this is one of those points, you know, as historians, we're forever invoking people and, and forever demanding that people remember history and rem- remember the sort of forgotten parts of history. But this is an example where, you know, in an ideal world, you'd want both sides to, to, to really forget their history and start from a clean slate. And maybe then they'd get somewhere because the history is the, is the baggage that is sort of poisoning a lot of this on both sides. Yeah, uh, if you go there, I don't know how, how much time you spend there, Roger, but I mean, one of the things you, one found as a journalist is that whoever you were talking to, an interview always began with a history lesson. You know, everyone, everyone in the region, including the Kurds, you know, if you started talking to the Kurds, uh, and the and the Brits invariably played some nefarious role in the, in the current crises. Uh, so yeah, I mean, do you remember what... Uh, Winston Churchill said about the Balkans, they produce more history than they can consume. And I'm afraid this is another case of that. Yeah. So I had a very interesting question here from Lucas in Falkirk in uh, Scotland, who says, um, love the podcast, but may I humbly suggest that you are viewing Hamas's objectives through a Western and rational mindset. Hamas are jihadis in the truest sense of the word. And he says, look at Hamas's founding charter. This is obviously insane, using that quote from the charter, but they really believe this stuff, Lucas says. Hamas is a death cult because, as they say, we love death more than you love life. It's hard for us in the West to believe that they really believe this stuff, but they do. And once you accept that premise, everything they do from slaughtering babies to to launching rockets from behind hospitals makes perfect sense. Um, I think there's something in that. I think we are very much viewing the actions of Hamas, oh, well, to, to, to a large extent in the, from a sort of rational mindset where, um, you know, you have to go back to the, the mindset that they're dealing with is one that's been poisoned by a lot of that history that we, we're talking about. And it has that added element of the irrationality of the sort of jihadi mindset as well. I think, I think there's definitely something in that description that you make. And also the idea, as, you, as he says in the, the end of that question, he says that the Palestinians in large measure support Hamas. Well, now, the extent to which we don't know, because effectively it's, uh, you know, any sort of democratic system has been long since suspended in Gaza, but to an extent, they support Hamas. So again, that to a large extent, I think perpetuates the horror. And the problem, of course, is that ordinary Palestinians can't see a way out of that, whether they support Hamas or not. And Hamas, we have to appreciate, are, are using the Palestinian people for their own nefarious ends. So I think there's some definitely something in that statement. What do you think, Patrick? We do actually know a bit about what uh, Palestinians feel about Hamas, not just in Gaza, but in the uh, West Bank as well. I came across a, some polling done by the Washington Institute, just uh, as just before the current events. And that was saying that, you know, Hamas is by no means popular in Gaza. Half of them, half of those polled wanted Hamas to stop calling for the destruction of Israel and adopt a two-state solution. About half would like the Palestinian Authority, which was basically booted out by Hamas from Gaza in 2006. They'd like the Palestinian Authority, which uh, rules in the in the West Bank, to take over. About less than half of them regarded Iran in a favorable light. They didn't see them as their friends. And before that, the kind of regional support for Hamas and Hezbollah appeared to be in decline, not sharp decline, but declining. So it's a very mixed picture. And I think you're kind of dealing with a lot of negatives here. There aren't really positive messages out there. I mean, the poor Palestinians have had terrible political leadership. You know, just look at the Palestinian Authority, which is by and large 
moderates, uh, I suppose you could put it. They, they haven't had any elections uh, for 15 years in the West Bank. There's widespread corruption. There's also corruption in Gaza. So I'm afraid there's very little one can see on the on the political horizon that is going to change this kind of stasis, you know, this sort of paralysis, political paralysis that you see in, in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And then, of course, the Israeli action now against Gaza is only going to presumably entrench those radical opinions still further and entrench Hamas still further, even though the intention, of course, of Israeli attention is to root them out. I mean, surely that's just going to strengthen their control. I, I would have thought so. I, mean, I, I really think it's an extremely improbable scenario that at the end of this, Gazans will say, okay, uh, you know, we've had enough of, of Hamas, we're going to boot them out. Um, there isn't an alternative, you know, um, and... There is a sort of societal kind of imperative, I think, uh, in Palestine. There's a reference to a death cult. I mean, that that is a kind of real thing, I'm afraid, and that the, the cult of martyrdom is something that you you feel a huge amount of pressure to go along with if you live particularly in Gaza. Mm. But again, history teaches us that um, you can't necessarily bomb people into aligning with your opinion. Um, we saw that in Iraq. You know, you, you couldn't bomb Iraqis to make them Democrats. Uh, we saw it in the Second World War. You know, the, the idea that we could bomb Germany into submission, it, it merely entrenched, you know, a fealty to the Nazi regime to a large extent. So yeah. uh, you have to wonder about the tactics there. You're absolutely right about that. I mean, one of the beliefs of the uh, strategic bombing campaign was that if you bombed German cities long enough and hard enough, the uh, inhabitants would say, okay, uh, this has clearly been brought upon us by the Nazi policies and we're going to turn on our, our rulers. Well, that showed remarkable ignorance about two things. One is that's just not the way that uh, populations react to bombing and the Brits should have known that from the experience of the Blitz where it actually created a lot of social solidarity. But the other thing is that if you're living under a regime like the Nazi regime, you're not the idea that you could just suddenly turn around and... Uh, overthrow a totalitarian machine, you know, is very, very fanciful. And the same thing applies to Hamas. Hamas is an authoritarian regime. It, it rules to a large extent by fear. And I think that's uh, something that we should reference in, in the next question we've got here, which is um, from Thomas in Stockholm, who says he's reading Alan Dershowitz's terror tunnels, the case for Israel's just war against Hamas. Alan Dershowitz, of course, being a very prominent uh, U.S., a legal figure. And he, uh, one of the questions that Dershowitz raises, or rather one of the claims he makes, is that the United Nations are kind of cooperating with Hamas by sheltering Palestinian civilians right in the middle of areas from which Hamas is firing. He also asks the question of why don't uh, the UN, who um, do have a big role in Gaza society, why don't they try and create areas, safe areas in the open spaces in Gaza, even though it's very, very crowded, there is actually agriculture there. So he's asking the question, why don't they create temporary shelters, tents if necessary, as places of asylum for the residents of the crowded cities? And it could prevent any Hamas fighters, any rockets, any tunnel builders from entering into these sanctuaries. And that way, Hamas would be denied the use of human shields, and Israel would have no reason to fire its rockets anywhere near these United Nations sanctuaries. The upshot of all this is, is, you know, why is the UN allegedly complicit with the Hamas game plan? Well, just say something here about the UN in Gaza. The, um, the agency there is called the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. It was set up in 1948 by the UN to care for the needs of all refugees from the Jewish Arab civil war 
that preceded the foundation of Israel, including Jews, though um, later Israel took over responsibility for, it, for its own refugees. Now, it operates in the West Bank and Gaza. It provides education, healthcare, social services for the population. So it's kind of a parallel state in a way, but it has a very difficult life. And UNRWA gets a lot of criticism from everyone. I've seen them close up. They seem to do as, as good a job as you might hope them to do, given the very difficult circumstances they uh, work under. They've been under pressure from Hamas for a long time, uh, usually over kind of the values that the UNRWA promotes, which are seen to clash with the Hamas's deeply uh, socially conservative and anti-Israel positions. For example, UNRWA basically is in charge of most of the schools there, and the school history books, which are obviously a potentially explosive subject there, uh, by the standards of the region, they're pretty accurate. They acknowledge the existence of Israel. They promote human rights, etc. And some Israelis have even said that they're actually no more distorted than the history of textbooks that are used in their schools. So UNRWA has had trouble with Hamas for you know promoting this kind of reasonable view of history, but also for things like organizing mixed sex activities for school kids like summer camps uh, and they've been forced i think in some cases to to hold uh, single sex camps only so they're under a lot of pressure you know hamas have raided un warehouses over the years helped themselves to to the contents but you've got to be people saying well you know UNRWA has to stand up to hamas well that's easier said than done that's an extremely difficult job uh, trying to hold the line and you face a, a bullet in the head if you if you try and stop them doing something they want to do. So I think that idea of UN organized safe havens is a, is a bit fanciful, I must say. If, if uh, Hamas want to use people as human shields, they will. Yeah, I, I agree. There seems to be, with apologies to Thomas, I think I think there seems to be a little bit of wishful thinking in that question. That On two sides, as you say, first, first that uh, UN organizations in Gaza are actually that autonomous, autonomous at all because they're working under at least alongside a very powerful and and murderous regime and secondarily that that actually there, there's that much leeway that the UN can do much on the ground to actually uh, protect civilians as well so i think there's a degree of wishful thinking there i fear well we'll draw a line under it there rather a grim week do join us on friday that's Roger and i when we'll be looking at all the latest developments in ukraine thank you goodbye <laughs>